All right, praise the Lord. Good morning. If you would uh, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. This is a very interesting book of the Bible, John. And sometimes um, if you're new to the Bible, just in a way of teaching a little bit, just to kind of get a real flavor for how the Bible's put together, John is the fourth of what's called the Gospels. And some of you say, well, why is he going through this? I know this already, but everybody doesn't. So I'm going to take my time a little bit. The Gospels are four different um, eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus Christ. And they're written by four different individuals with four different um, personalities, four different viewpoints, all teaching the exact same message about the life of Jesus Christ, but all from different directions to give us a real good flavor of what his life was like. In fact, they organized their books in four totally different ways and four totally different mindsets to make sure you get a full picture of who Jesus Christ is because Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament. You say, well, man, I haven't read uh, the books of the Old Testament. How many know there are 39 of them? So 39 books of the Old Testament, and it takes quite a while to read them. And it takes a lifetime to understand them. And I'm saying that truthfully. But the very beginning of the Old Testament, there was a prophecy that man had sinned and the world that God created it was good would have sin entered into it and this world would be damaged. Man's heart would be damaged. Man who was close to God, knew God, loved God, fellowship with God, walked with God, All of that was damaged by a thing called sin. And the Bible said the only one that could restore things back to being right is this person called the Messiah. That was in the very beginning in Genesis in the Garden of Eden. And so the first prophecy about Jesus Christ came. So Jesus is the fulfillment of restoring that world back that is perfect, that is without sin and that is with God, and fellowship with God and loving God. So how many know it's very important that we understand who Jesus is? So John is the fourth of those narratives, and John is a fascinating one. Matthew, just to give you a real flavor for Matthew, I believe Matthew was written, and there's debate on when it was written, but I firmly believe it was written very, very early, and I believe it was an account of all of the disciples, those who walked with Jesus, It probably was written in Hebrew very early on. And uh, it's full of prophecies about why this is definitely the one who is our Messiah. And so it's written in that style. And and Matthew is just sharing everybody's um, accounts and how it fulfills Old Testament. Mark is a very lively book. And it most likely is Mark is in Rome And everybody's there. There's a great persecution. Paul's there. Peter's there. Uh, Silas is there. Or uh, Mark is there. Um, And all of them are there. And there's a great persecution. Peter and Paul actually die there. And many people call Mark the uh, gospel um, basically as being related by Peter to Mark. So Peter was um, a fisherman by trade. He wasn't the most educated, but he was fiery. And he was uh, in the inner uh, he was as close to Jesus as almost anybody from the very beginning. And Jesus uh, put a lot of leadership on Peter's shoulders. 
And so we get a great account from Mark that's very lively. It's full of miracles. It's full of um, just action. And it's almost written like they're dictating sermons from Peter before he dies. And the book of Mark is written in that fashion. That's why it's so exciting because they think he was actually preaching to the Roman praetorium and uh, Mark was actually dictating his sermons and it's almost written like sermon style when you read Mark. So that's why it's so, such an exciting book. I mean, love Mark. Mark's a very underrated book. Luke, though, um, Paul is giving a defense of the gospel to the Jewish world and Paul has been arrested. Paul has uh, spread the gospel um, the Holy Spirit has used Paul and many other people to spread the gospel to the entire Gentile world. And Luke is actually with uh, Paul. It's more of Paul's gospel. Okay. He's traveling with Paul. And Luke and Acts are almost one book. And he's giving a detailed account of how the gospel was delivered to the Gentile world and how it was delivered to them by Jesus Christ uh, to deliver to the world. So Luke is a very precise Luke, um, Luke, there, there are whole books written on how brilliant um, Luke is as a doctor, a physician, and also an historian. One of the greatest historians that ever lived, very brilliant, intelligent man. Uh, Luke is a very orderly book that just gives very great details. Now, John said all that to get to John. John was uh, about the youngest of the apostles, and he was very close. He was in that same inner circle that Peter was in. But John always is referred to as the one that was really close to Jesus. I mean, he would lay his head on his chest and hear his heartbeat. And, and, and he just really had a, um, they were really, really close in their hearts with each other. And John would go on to be the last living apostle. In fact, his book, the, these early ones, were written very early on, but John was one that was written probably in his 80s. And so John had a whole lifetime. He was probably a little younger than Jesus, and he probably wrote the book around, you know, the, the mid-80s. So he's probably in his 80s. He's had a whole lifetime of following Jesus Christ from the time he was a very young young man, you know, probably close to teenage years. And now he's at the end of his life and he's trying to put Jesus' life in a very spiritual order to make you understand what he wants you to understand about his life. And so he puts it really, he frames his whole book around seven miracles, signs he calls them, of what Jesus was trying to tell us. Okay, so every miracle that he selected weren't all the miracles, weren't a conclusive group of miracles, but he was trying to say, here's a very, very critical part of Jesus' teaching that you need to understand by what he was doing. It was symbolic of what he's trying to show you. And so one of the first things that we find here is John chapter 3, and it's the one of the foundational teachings of Jesus' life. And it says, in fact, I'm going to start in verse 23 of chapter 2 just for a little context. Jesus had just done his first miracle in John chapter 2. He was at a wedding in Canaan. Now, does anybody know where Cana's at? Cana's in Galilee. Okay, so that means it's up toward the north where Jesus grew up. But the Passover is in Jerusalem, which is southern Israel, a pretty good distance away. So in chapter 2, he's actually in Cana of Galilee, 
near the Sea of Galilee and he's performing miracles. Uh, the first miracle he performed was this miracle at this wedding where this water was miraculously turned into um, fruit of the vine, the Bible says. And so Jesus performs a miracle. Everybody's amazed. Then you begin to go in chapter 2, the end here, it says, Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs. So how many people? Lots of people saw, plural, miraculous signs. Now all they told us in the early part of John is he was in Galilee, his first miracle. Now it says he's in Jerusalem, but many miracles and many people have seen. So they don't give us the details there of all the miracles. John's just going straight to an important point here. And he's trying to be, remember, he's sitting back as an 80-something-year-old man, and he's just trying to give us real details from, uh, how many know when you've spent, you know, this would have been 55 years thinking about it, maybe 50, 55 years, he's had a lot of time to digest it. Okay, unlike the other books that are writing in contemporary history and, and putting everything together so everybody knows in order at the time period what happened, he's actually reflecting and saying, what would my Lord and the Holy Spirit's just working through him to give details. So several miracles have been done between Cana of Galilee and Jerusalem, right? And it says, now I was at Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. Great thing, right? But... That's a big one. Jesus would not entrust himself to them. Whoa. So many believed on his name because of the miracles, but Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to those people yet. That's interesting. So I can believe on his name, but if it's not the correct kind of believing, then he may not entrust himself to me yet. He wants to make sure you believe right. Let me say, man, if God would do a miracle... That's what I'm waiting for, man. I've been telling him for a long time. He knows it. Miracle, God. Give me the sign. I'll commit. Tell, you know, just do this. I'm just asking you for one thing, and if you're really God, do it. Now, how many have ever done that? How many people would never admit that publicly by raising your hand in a sanctuary? Okay. I've done it. I had to finally give up on that in order to serve God. And so before John goes into all these signs that Jesus did to authenticate his message, he's telling you in advance the signs are really not what saves you. It just authenticates that I'm the one you can believe in to be saved. But if you're waiting for a miracle, that probably is not going to save you. It's faith in Jesus Christ, the one who is authenticating himself with miracles. And he goes on and he says, um, he did not need man's, let's see. So he would not entrust himself to them because he knew all men. He did not need their test, man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Okay, Jesus is clearly, John has selected this intentionally to show that Jesus was 100% man, but he was 100% God. Do you see that um, he knew what was in man? Now, some of you think you know what's in a man's heart or a woman's heart, right? We think that we know, man, I know what they're thinking. I know what they, their thoughts are. But Jesus actually did. I'm being sarcastic. Follow me along when I'm sarcastic. All right, I'm a helpless little sarcastic soul. I'm sorry. All right. Sometimes we think we know what people are thinking, but we don't actually, right? We can guess sometimes. But Jesus was God 100%, man 100%. 
So John is showing you that he knows what's on their mind before they even speak it. And he gives an example here in 3 verse 1, which is our text. Takes me a long time to get there. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now that's the Sanhedrin. This is not just any Pharisee. This is, uh, this is the word archon. Archon means ruler of rulers. Okay. Satan is called the archon of demons. Um, Jesus Christ is the archon of the world. Okay. The ruler of the world, the ruler of the universe. Okay. Satan is the leader over demons. Lord is the world, Lord over all the world, all the universe, right? So it's a word that's used to show rulership even over a group. Okay. So this guy was not only in this, the council, he was a ruler of the council which means he was very high-level Pharisee, okay? And this is very unusual because Jesus is a homeless preacher, okay? He's not um, exactly the highest-level guy. I mean, he's not a decorated person. He's just somebody who is preaching, and people believe at this time he may be the Messiah, and he's done a lot of miracles, okay? So this ruler of the ruling council, he came to Jesus when? At night, and he said, Rabbi. Now, this is very unusual to call him Rabbi. So he's already on dangerous ground here. He's coming at night because he knows what people will say if they find out he's inquiring of him. But there's something inside of him that says, this is the one that they've talked about in the, in the Old Testament. This is the one who's going to be the Messiah. This is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And his miracles are validating that. And I need to know for myself, but I'm not fully convinced. All right, how many have ever been there in life? You know, I think that Jesus Christ is the right thing. I, I, I see there's something in me. I know that it's the right thing to do, but I need to be fully convinced. And so this is what he's doing by cover of night. He's investigating. And I can remember when I was wanting to give my heart to the Lord, I remember something inside of me just kept eating at me. The Holy Spirit was just saying, hey, you, know, you need to give your heart to the Lord. You need to give your heart. To and I was just like, by night I was investigating. How many have ever done that? Some of you might be doing that now. You're just investigating, and that's okay. That's, that's a good place to investigate. Figure out who he is, what he is, how he'll change your life, what he'll do to you in your heart. And uh, this man was investigating, and it goes on and it says, he said, Rabbi, now there were three, historically three things you would, you would call, um, there were three terms that meant rabbi, and evidently the one he used is the third and the highest honorary term that you can use for a rabbi. And they say at one time only seven people uh, would you call that particular name that he used. So he was giving him a very high level, Now, in some places it would be uh, something that would be used like commonly. You may hear somebody say, well, that's a common thing to call your teacher. But for the ruling council archon of the synagogue to call somebody that, it had to be a high uh, position. In fact, there were only a few schools of rabbi teaching where he would call somebody that, seven people you know, that he would do. So he calls him that, which uh, is showing an incredible amount of respect uh, for Jesus. So he says, rabbi, he says, we know, now I'm not aware that anybody's with him. Do you notice that? I just had a plural, we know, 
But I don't know that anybody's with him here. Evidently, he's alone. So what he's saying is he's talking on behalf of several people that realize that he's the Messiah. Now, this is um, this is um, very controversial because lots of the people, several people in the synagogue in the highest positions in Israel right now, in the Supreme Court, are sending him to inquire because he says, we know. Okay? So he says, we know that you are a teacher who has come from who? God, because no one could perform the miracular signs. Do you see signs plural again? He just did his first miracle. Lots of signs have been done. Because we know your teacher has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, now what would you answer to that question? Somebody tell me what the question was there. There wasn't a question. Does anybody see a question mark there? He said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him, period. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born again when he is old? Nicodemus said, surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb. In reply, Jesus says something that makes no sense. You see, the reply wasn't equivalent, wasn't answering a question. He just knew the guy's heart. And he knows your heart today. He knows my heart today. And Jesus really wasn't about the whole conversation about, yeah, 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 I did do a lot of signs. I'm great. What can I say? I'm from God. You know, he wasn't really into the whole conversation Nicodemus was having, and he wasn't answering a question Nicodemus has. He just says, hey, one requirement to get to heaven, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, how important is this statement if it's at the beginning of a man named John who spent his whole life with him, was closer to him maybe than anybody, is 85 years old, had 50, 55 years of of uh, introspection to think about what was important. And he starts off with the story when Jesus' ministry begins. The first story he says is, you must be born again or you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Very blunt, wasn't it? Now, this story would be, John had a choice between a lot of different stories he could have put here, right? In fact, how many think it would be better if it were somebody who were a very bad sinner came to Jesus and said, hey, what must I do to be saved? And it would be maybe, uh, you know, a foul mouth, uh, blue collar worker who, you know, maybe Peter, you know, coming out of the, you know, having a rough day's work and, you know, Jesus sees him kind of angry at the world, you know, and throwing his tools around and he's like, Peter, you got to be born again, man. And we'd like, of course, Peter's a rough fisherman, man. He's He's got a rough life and he's just doing a lot of bad things. And, and that makes total sense that, that Peter needs to shed that old fisherman life and become born again. It'd be okay if 
if it were like I preached about last week, it was the woman caught in the act of adultery. And she's kneeling on the ground. John could have put that story there. And he, and he could have said, woman, you must be born again or you can't see the kingdom of heaven. Well, of course. Of course she should be born again. She's caught in the act of a terrible sin. And Jesus is telling her if she doesn't change her ways, but he doesn't do that. John uses a number one ruler of the Pharisees over the Sanhedrin, and not just a guy who was a ruler over that particular group of people. Now, this group of people, um, they really, in, in a lot of ways, were the good guys of their day. Now, we think about their name, they were the bad guys because they were always legalistic and they were always aggressive with people and, and seemed like a harsh group. And But in that particular time, they were well-respected as people that had committed themselves to completely obeying the Bible in every detail and beyond the detail of the Bible. And this guy was a ruler of those people. So how strict do you think his life was? He was a ruler. In fact, there was no more of total Pharisees in the whole area during the time of Herod the Great, there were six, no more than 6,000 ever. So just being a Pharisee period would have been 6,000 or less people. Sanhedrin was 71 technically, 70 people, and then they had the one ruler over them, which would be the high priest, so it would be 71 with him. So then you narrow it down to 71, but then Nicodemus was a ruler of the rulers. So you narrow that 70 down even more, and you've got a very elite person here, And you say, well, man, he was probably one of the terrible, harsh, mean ones that wasn't right with God. No, he was the one that was sent as a representative because he was curious about God. He was one of the ones that probably was a little more faithful than the other ones because he was, he wanted to know. How many know this was not an easy thing for him to go in the night and inquire of Jesus Christ and figure out if he is the one and figure out if he's the Messiah and and so he really is a pretty special person. You know, and in fact, you find him five times mentioned in the Bible, it's all by John. And um, his family, historically, there's records that, you know, we can't really be positive about, but they're Josephus and some of the different historical records say that maybe his father or grandfather was one of the ones who negotiated... Um, um, uh, very early on when uh, Israel became a province of the Roman government, it was one of his family members that actually was negotiating that agreement with the Roman government. And then several decades after, when the um, temple was destroyed in 70, there's another Nicodemus Ben-Gurion that they think may have been his son or grandson that also negotiated with the Romans whenever the nation was being destroyed. So on both ends, there's de- debate whether his family was so unique that they were actually a real ruling aristocracy there. So he was a very unique person. And uh, what I'm saying is the person that Jesus said this to, um, the people would come to Jesus and say, well, look at the Pharisees. They fast, they, they tithe, they do all these things there. In fact, they, they went beyond the scope of, um, I don't know if Nicodemus did, but he probably did. Um, they went beyond the scope of religion. In fact, uh, a lot of people don't know, but they they really stress, they begin to stress the books of Moses, and they would take one little part that said, honor the Sabbath, 
and keep it holy. And let's see if I can find my page here. But they would take the book of Moses. Now get this. I want you to kind of follow me on this. I should never get away from my notes. But they would take that little law, and I wrote down how many. All right. I should just do everything by memory. But anyway, the honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. They took that, and then the Jews have what's called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah is how you explain the books of Moses. Okay, so when you have a law, the Mishnah is like the ruling class of uh, priests. They would go and define what it means to keep the Sabbath holy. Okay, now what was the Sabbath? Sabbath is a very wonderful thing. Sabbath means that God is going to require you to not work one day a week. Sabbath was not for God, he said, it was for man. I want man to not have to work all the time. And how many in here could say amen? God doesn't want us working all the time. He wants us to rest. So the Mishnah, what they would do is they would take that Sabbath and keep it holy, and they wrote 24 volumes on that one law of what it means to keep it holy. And I wish I could find my examples here. But there's so many examples of what they did. Like there were certain kinds of knots you couldn't tie. You couldn't tie certain knots like for a sailor's knot, or uh, just certain kinds of knots that were considered work. Then there were certain kinds of knots that were not considered work, like a woman's apron, or uh, you know, just certain like a, uh, the the shoe tying of a shoe. So there were certain knots that were legal knots and illegal knots. That's how they come up with twenty-four volumes. Okay. Um, so if you were going to draw water, you couldn't draw water like normal, but because you could tie a knot on an apron. You could tie an apron to a bucket and draw water, but you couldn't tore a normal knot with a rope and drop it down and get water because that was work. You could move a chair, but if the chair touches the dirt while you're moving it, that's plowing. So it can never touch. So the Mishnah and the Talmuds later, the Jerusalem Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, they be, these books begin to get larger and larger and larger and larger, okay? And so in order to honor the Sabbath, you almost were working harder to honor the Sabbath than you were honoring the God who wants you to rest on the Sabbath. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem today, you go to an elevator on Shabbat, and it's a whole lot more work because there's a rule that says it's work to push an elevator button. Okay, so... What's the logical solution? The logical solution is let it open on every floor. So if you're on the 18th floor, which are we were actually doing Shabbat on the 18th floor at the top, and because it was Shabbat, every floor has to stop. So basically you have hallways of people either running up 18 flights of stairs, which does not work at all, <laughs> or waiting two hours to get from the bottom to the top because it stops on every floor. And so... What you end up having is religion. Something that God meant for good, they made 24 volumes out of one commandment. And so Nicodemus was good. Nicodemus was somebody seeking to keep the law and, 
and wanting to know God, wanting to know what God wants him to do with his life. And so Nicodemus comes to the Lord not as a notorious sinner, not as somebody who was at a rough life, but somebody who was far and ahead of everybody as keeping the law better than anybody. How many understand that? Nobody kept the law better than a Pharisee. Okay? But Jesus said, your righteousness has to go beyond the Pharisee. And that blew people's mind. Well, I don't understand that. What does that mean? How do you... I mean, there's no way to do that. There's no way for a common person to do that because a lot of um, a lot of people that were keeping the law didn't have anything to do but do that all day long. That was their job, was to sit around and read the law and find new ways to keep it. And if you were a poor person, boy, you really were at a disadvantage because you had a harder time than even they did because you had a whole lot more things you have to deal with. How many know that? If you work for a living, if you sit in the walls of a church all day, you don't have nearly the temptation sometimes as you do being in a workplace, right? And so what I'm trying to get you to understand is this is who came to Jesus. And before the man could really say anything, Jesus says, you have to be born again or you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you know what that means? If he can't enter the kingdom of heaven, he's the number one representative of who should be able to go to heaven. Right in front of him. He's disqualified. So that means I'm disqualified. That means everybody here is disqualified. And boy, that's a terrible message. We're all going to be sad now when we go home. Because we're all disqualified. But if we can become born again, we're all qualified. If it's something besides religious activity, if it's something beyond keeping the law, if it's beyond something about doing something to be righteous, then we can all be included. And that's what Jesus is laying as the foundation of his message. He's saying you must be born anew. And this word anew is a word that in some way confused him. And it should be confusing. Because this word is a Greek word that has three different meanings. And I'll only find those three meanings if I can find them in my notes. (laughs) which I did. But from Thayer's lexicon, Mount's Greek, uh, Mount's Greek definitions and Strong's concordance, there's three different ways that you can take this word in the Greek, and he took it the wrong way. One is, you have to be born from above, from a higher place, and only God could do that. The other one is, you have to go back and be born again from the beginning from birth, which seems naturally impossible. And number three, you have to have a new birth and do it all over again. And so evidently these three ideals in Greek, it's not really clear what Jesus meant. Now, which one do you think that Nicodemus took from that? He said, how can I be born when I am old? Surely I cannot enter a second time in my mother's womb to be born. So he took it the wrong way. And what Jesus was saying, no, there is a birth that so changes a person. And like Mike was saying today, when you put those hands up and you say, I give up, I give up everything. You know, I hold nothing in my hands. I come just as I am. 
That's what he's asking this man to do. He's asking this man, this man has spent his whole life. uh, He has generations of family members that have been elevated to the highest position. They were the most respected. They were the ones that did the most religious things. He did so many things to be religious in front of God. And Jesus Christ was saying, I don't need any of it. You're going to have to be a baby again. Man. Well, that's a little easier when my background is messed up. That's a little easier when my dad's in prison or, or my, my, my father's a murderer or, or, or somebody, you know, I've, I've, I've hurt people my whole life and I've been a bad person. I've been an alcoholic. I've been a, I've done all these things my whole life. How many know it's a little easier to say, come just as I am? But when you're religious, man, this is a hard saying. He's saying you must be born again, Nicodemus. Now, there are two kinds of misunderstandings, all right? There's a misunderstanding of you're not explaining it well enough, and so I'm not comprehending it. And there's another misunderstanding that says, I don't want to hear what you have to say. I don't want to change. Leave me the way I am. Jesus put it in the simplest terms. In fact, a few verses later, he says, if you can't understand these simple things, how are you going to teach the people the more complicated things? He scolded him because he would not understand. Now, he should have understood this. Because, you know, um, in Ezekiel, God had prophesied that there's going to be someone who comes who will put a new heart in my people. They'll give them a new heart. They'll be a new creation. In fact, the Jews even taught when those dirty Gentiles would become proselytes and become part of the Jewish church, he was the leader of the Sanhedrin. You know what they would tell him? You're a new creation. You've had a new birth. You're a new person. You're a new citizen of Israel. And here you are, new like a new person again. They would tell him that. Now, Jesus was telling the leader of the entire Jewish, one of the leaders of the entire Jewish system, the Sanhedrin, he's saying, you can become a new person. And he's like, this is the one that misunderstands because they don't want to believe it. So Jesus scolds him for that. Now, the story of Nicodemus is fascinating because it's a story of the progression of what he believes. Because in three, he's kind of like, I don't understand it. It's too hard to understand. Chapter seven, he's the one defending Jesus when they're trying to accuse him of things and trying to um, give him an unfair, um, when he's saying things, he said, well, give him a chance to explain himself and maybe he can say what he means. We don't, under our law, uh, punish somebody without giving him a chance to talk. He's the one defending Jesus. And then by the time you get to John 19, Jesus has been crucified. And guess who is there getting the body of Jesus? Nicodemus with Joseph of Arimathea, two very wealthy men probably served together. He was probably one of the ones that was inquiring through Nicodemus about Jesus. So you see a progression of his faith, but right now he's trying to figure out what does he mean by new birth? And today we've got to figure this out. Because, you know, we're going to be 
It's going to be determined whether we go to heaven simply based on the new creation. Either we have been newly created or we're the old man. The old man is worthy of punishment, worthy of death, and unfortunately, the truth is, worthy of hell. The new man, the new baby that's born, when faith in Jesus Christ, something new is born. And that new creation is going to heaven. The new creation has a different seed. You don't believe me? Listen to the church's teaching after Christ died. Peter, which is a very close person to Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1.3, he says, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see that because of his great mercy, he gave us new birth. He made us become a new person. How many have ever wanted to be a new person? All right, how many have ever looked at yourself and said, God, I've tried to turn over a new leaf every year, every new year. I say, I'm going to do this different, I'm going to do that different, I'm going to do this different. And God's saying, you can be a new person today. You just got to realize you're a sinner. That's it. You got to be willing to give up and say, God, I want to be the new person. I want to be the person the Holy Spirit wants me to be, not the person I've been. And some of you are so stubborn, you cross your arms and you say, man, I've been that way my whole life. I'll always be that way. And the Holy Spirit's trying to say, we're all going to be judged on whether we're a new creation. The old creation must die and the new creation must rise up. And the new creation is somebody who's obedient to God. The old creation hates God. The new creation listens to God and walks with God. The old creation ignores God and doesn't want God in their life. Amen? Peter goes on a little bit more. First chapter, same book. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for one another, love one another deeply from the heart, for you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable through living and enduring word of God. That means that you had a perishable seed before. You know what perishable is? If you have perishable food, what's going to happen? So when you have a food drive, don't bring perishable food. Why? It's going to rot in a few days and it's unusable. You're going to rot in a few days and you're not going to be going to heaven. But if you're a new creation, he says, now you have an imperishable seed. That means it will not perish, it will not die, it's a new creation, it's a new birth, it's a whole different person with a whole different seed. And this is teaching all through the Bible. We're going to be judged not by, hey, did you say a sinner's prayer? Well, come on up here, come on up here, let's find out before you go to heaven. Did you say a sinner's prayer? No, he's going to say, did you pray the prayer that gave you a new life? that made you a new person, that you became born again and the old man passed away and behold, a new one is here. New. James speaks of it. James 1, how many know James was the little brother of Jesus? Very respected in the church, became a martyr very early on. He says, in James 1.18, it says, God chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all created. See, God is going to cause you 
to be born again through the word of truth. That means I heard the word. Now, what would the old man say about the word? The old man would say, that's not for me. That's not who I am. That's not what I am. All right, how many have been there? The old man's all talking through your head. Saying, oh, I'm not a praying person. I'm not a worshiping person. I'm not a person that talks about God. I'm not a person that's close to God. Of course you're not because you haven't been born again. That's exactly how the old man acts. That's how my old man acted. The person that I was before didn't raise his hands. Why? Because he was too proud to raise his hands. He didn't live for God. Why? Because he knew the right way to go. He knew the right thing to do. In his own heart, he thought he was smarter than everybody else. How many know that I had to give up my opinions? I had to give up who I was. I had to give up everything and I had to be buried with him so I could be resurrected with him. That means now the word of God is different. Now God says it. My opinion's irrelevant. Hear what I said. If you're still living and you're not born again, you've got a very relevant opinion in your life. But if you've been born again, the truth is birthing a new person. That means that you are a person who loves other people, it said there. No, but the old person hates people. How many have ever had the old person rise up? Oh, I do all the time. And the old person says, be like this, act like this, be angry like this, hate people like this. Then the old man's saying, man, that guy is death. That guy's not good for you. That guy is death. And the Bible says I have to bury him daily because he is going to affect my life in a bad way. And the Bible says I've got to walk in truth. I've got to walk in the newness of life. Let's go a little further. Titus. It's all Titus. Nobody reads Titus. It's just a little book, right? Titus, it says, he saved us not because of the righteous things that we've done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Do you hear the rebirth again? A new person. Paul, not to be left out. Romans 6.1, he talks, so he goes into a little more detail. He says, you have to die first, then you get to be born again. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus? We were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism in death in order that Jesus Christ would be raised from the dead through the glory of the Father that we too may share in his new life. You see that? I literally have to come to a place where I say I choose to bury me. Anybody ever buried yourself? You ever buried yourself? I remember when I walked into church, literally and finally buried myself. You say, well, that's kind of weird. I get a lot weirder than that, really. That's mildly weird compared to this mind, you know. But you ever walked in and everything in me says, don't do that? You don't worship, Chad. You don't talk about the Bible. You don't. You remember the? I remember the first time I decided to tell my friends, "I'm going to live for the Lord now, guys." I was essentially burying myself. 
I knew that they may never want anything to do with me again. But I went up to him and said, you know what, Lord, even if I don't have a friend left in the world, that was my sinner's prayer. If I don't have a friend left in this world, Lord, I'm going to hold your hand and never let go no matter what. My wife and I had been dating for three years when neither one were serving the Lord. I walked up to her, the only girlfriend I've ever had. And I should have been fortunate because I may never have found another one. I should have been really protective, you know. But I remember walking up to her and I said, you know what? I'm living for the Lord now. And if you decide to leave me, I totally understand because I'm not even the same person anymore. And I remember telling her that I was so different that I totally understood if she left me because I'm not the same person. I mean, oh, that's all burying myself. The old man, I had I had ambitions. I had things that I felt like I needed to do in life. And I just said, you know what? That's not what God wants for my life. And I buried it. I buried ambitions. I buried hopes. I buried angers. I buried fears. I buried shame. I buried all that stuff and died. And a new person rose up. And that new person had different ideas. Where did the ideas come from? From me, a more refined Chad? You know, a better, more intelligent Chad? There there could be a better intelligent Chad. My wife would argue that'd be a good thing. But uh, it's not about becoming a better person or having better ideals. It's about bearing the old and finding out the person that God intended me to be. And the the, the guy that God intended me to be is nothing like the Chad that has new goals and new ambitions. It's totally different. It's totally against anything that I ever thought or I ever knew. I'd listen to Jesus' words and I'd say, i got to be that now. That's what i got to be. And I would hear his words and I would compare his words to the old Chad. And they didn't line up. So I had to choose. Do I take old Chad who could be a little better? Or do I throw him away completely and rise up in the new creation that God created me to be? And so Nicodemus is... He's going to have to throw away a lot if he accepts this. Because how many know Moses said there would be a prophet who would come, listen to him. And he told the Jewish people, when Jesus comes, listen to him. And so he would have to basically, to become a Christian, he would have to let go of all the traditions of man. And so Jesus was telling him, Nicodemus, you have to give up all of that and you must be born again like a baby. Now, Paul's interesting because Paul takes this concept even further than everybody. Paul. Is that here? Okay. Paul actually talks to him, 1 Corinthians 3 1 to 2. He says, Brothers and sisters, I cannot dress you as people who live by the Spirit but as people are still worldly, meaning you're still babies in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, because you're not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. See, Paul took the analogy a little further. He literally treats them like they're babies. They became born again in this pagan society, and here is a 60-year-old Paul saying, Hey, here, little buddy. He goes, I would love to give you milk, Mr. 60-year-old man, but I'm just going to give you a bottle for now. 
because he understands that they were born again at 60 years old, pagan people in the city of Corinth. And you say, well, what's that mean? That means their whole life was raised in sexual immorality, drunkenness, all these different things that Paul Paul mentions as such were some of you in Corinth. Some of them were homosexuals. Some were sexually immoral in other ways. Some were um, alcoholics. Some were... I mean, it just, that city was known as most, one of the most corrupt cities in the world. It was very comparable to Las Vegas, probably a lot worse if you study Corinth. And Paul's saying, okay, now you're born again. So now the new person is learning how to grow and live. So when he addresses them, he doesn't address them as uh, mature adults or 40 and 50 and 60 year olds. He says, hey, let's start with some milk. Okay. And then we'll give you the deeper things. And sometimes we don't realize that because I don't know, have we been born again? Do we realize how much we have to learn from the Word of God? Do we realize how much this culture has scarred us in in our ability to live for God? Paul doesn't just stop there. 2 Corinthians, he does it again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. Galatians 6.15, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What? The whole Testament, that's how you became a believer or not a believer. He said it means nothing. Well, what's important now, Paul? He says, what counts as the new creation? So he's asking Nicodemus to give up every religious thing that they knew to be true and saying, no, all that matters now is the new creation. How's the new creation doing? Is there a new creation in your life or you just have a belief? He wouldn't entrust himself to those who just believed. He entrusted to those who were born again. It goes on, Ephesians 4.22. You were taught with regard to your way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires. How many know that? The old self, think about it, is being corrupted by evil desires. How many in here have ever had an evil desire? There are a few in here. That's awesome. It's so much easier for me to preach when people actually have something relevant that I'm talking about, when they're evil desire people in here. So I'm just talking to the evil desire people. (laughs) I hope you love sarcasm. But, But you're being corrupted by your deceitful desires, he said. It says, um, I want you to be made new in the attitude of your mind and to be put on your new self, it's been created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. So he wants us to take the old self and the attitudes that come with it, and he wants us to put on the new self created to be like God and find true righteousness and true holiness. Hebrews five twelve. in fact... By this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good and evil. So do you see that Paul is also teaching what Jesus is teaching to Nicodemus. He's explaining that everything has to do with the new creation. Is the new creation obedient? Is it a new creation that listens to God? Is it a 
new creation that's being trained in righteousness. You know how it feels to be a Pharisee and live your whole life living up to these rules that are almost impossible to live up to? And Jesus says, all that instruction is gone. Now become a baby in new things. He said, well, what are you going to I'm going to teach you how to have true righteousness. I'm going to teach you how to really be close to God. I'm going to teach you how to really obey the word. I want to teach you how to have real intimacy with God. Jesus was the only one that could shatter that system of man-made rules and put man back in relationship with God. And some of you have walked in here today, and the purpose of this message is, number one, there are a lot of people that are religious Just because I do something over and over and over and over again doesn't mean that I'm a new creation. Because Nicodemus did everything a religious person could do and Jesus said it wasn't enough. And what Jesus was asking him to do was much simpler than what he was accustomed to doing. And some of us will do things religiously. How many of you religiously eat breakfast every morning? You're a religious person. Did you know that? How many brush your teeth religiously every morning? You're a religious person. Congratulations. To be a religious person means I have a pattern of doing things a certain way over and over and over and over. But that doesn't mean that those things are getting me closer to God or in right relationship with God. Jesus demands one little thing. Be born again. Bury yourself and be risen up in him. And I was reading a story, and I'm going to kind of close with this illustration if the worship team wants to come up. But there was a man that I read about. And he had recently, this just expresses what I'm trying to say today. He had recently given his heart to the Lord, but he had been a bad alcoholic. How many had ever seen somebody born again? And man, they had that drinking problem and alcohol addiction. And and he had recently given his heart to the Lord. He was really excited about his new birth, excited about his new life. But he worked in a place where everybody was pretty rough. You know, my family grew up boilermakers. How many know boilermakers, welders, right? Rough group, right, to be a Christian? Maybe construction. How many of you work construction? It can be tough to be... A Christian, right? A lot of environments are really tough. Well, this guy worked in one of those environments. And they had heard he quit drinking. They heard he was uh, serious about God. And here, boy, here comes the test. Here comes the fire. And so he's at work, and they're giving him a hard time. And they're, they're laughing about his new lifestyle. Now, why do you think they do that? Because they know if he can do it, all of us can do it. In fact, I, I remember, I'm going to stop my story. I remember my class reunion. We were, uh, I'm going to finish the story in a second, but my class reunion, they were lighting a couple of candles uh, for a couple of our students. But before they, they did that, a couple that passed away, before they did that, they said, hey, tell us what you've been doing since school. And uh, so a couple of people stood up and they were talking about going out to bars and drinking and how wild their life's been since school and this and that. And I can remember standing up at my reunion and I just said, hey guys, I just want to let you know that, uh, that uh, I gave my heart to the Lord right after, um, a couple years after I graduated from high school. And I said, I just want to apologize to 
to everybody because I could have reached a lot of you guys for the Lord if I would have served the Lord in high school, but I didn't. And, um, and I'm so sorry that I didn't. And then I sat down in the room. The party just stopped. I ruined the whole party. And nobody said a word. And then the class president just finally said, hey, let's just light these candles. And uh, so we lit the candles. Moment of silence. Well, anyway, after I said that, people started coming up from all over. People were crying. And they said, uh, you know what? I did the same thing and I didn't have the nerve to say it. Or I know that if you could do it, I could have done it. And so anyway, this guy is at work and it's all he's hearing because he's the only chance they have. If he stands strong in his, in his new life and they can see a new creation. See, the world, the only thing that speaks to the world is a new creation. Religion doesn't speak to the world. New creations speak to the world. Jesus being birthed inside of you as a new creation speaks to the world. Religion doesn't say anything but bad things. So they were riding him hard and they were riding him hard and they were giving him a hard time. Well, finally, one of the guys really thought he had him cornered. He said, you do realize that you don't drink anymore, that Jesus turned the water into wine. And oh, you could just just hear him gasp. And church, don't believe that. The man looked at him and, and maybe the most perfect response I've ever heard. He said, you know, I wasn't in Israel that day when he turned the water into whatever. And I don't know what he did. He said, but I'll tell you this, at my house, I've seen him turn beer into food, clothes, and a responsible dad that loves his kids. That's what it means to be a new creation. I've seen him turn beer into food, clothes, and a dad that loves his kids. I mean, no, that's what it's all about. That's the miracle Jesus was looking to perform was the miracle in you and me. Hallelujah. Stand to your feet. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. Father, I just pray right now, Lord God. Oh, Lord, the wind of your Holy Spirit, Lord God. Begin to blow in hearts, Lord God. Lord, the change. We can sense it, Lord God. Change in their lives. Not just the same man who got better, but a different person. A new person, Lord God. A new life. Born again, Lord God. Holy Spirit, begin to move. Oh, Lord God, I pray these things right now, Lord. Church, let me tell you what ends up happening here in this story. He begins to tell Nicodemus how he's going to do the born-again experience. And he says, Nicodemus, you know all about the wind. In fact, the wind meant two things to Nicodemus when he heard Jesus say, the wind. It's the same word for Holy Spirit in the Old New Testament. He would have known it. He said, the wind blows and the wind does things. The wind knocks down trees. The wind rearranges neighborhoods. How many have seen it? The wind does mighty work. And he said, the new birth... The born-again experience is just like that, Nicodemus. He said, learn it so you can teach it. It's just like that. The Holy Spirit goes through a person's heart. You don't see the Holy Spirit. You don't see Him come. You don't see Him go. But you see the effects of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. And what the Lord was telling Nicodemus is what He's telling us this morning. 
Make room for the Holy Spirit in your life. You say, well, man, I know all the good things about the Holy Spirit. I mean, you know, when you're, when you're on the ocean and you can catch a wind, you got the power of the Holy Spirit. When you got a windmill and you need power, you got the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, you know, all these areas where the wind powers things, but the wind also damages things. And the work of the Holy Spirit will empower you to do great things, but the Holy Spirit will also wreck you, and it's the wonderful, most wonderful wreckage you will ever have. He'll destroy things that the enemy has built for lifetimes. Some of you have anger, some of you have bitterness, some of you have sorrow, some of you have things that you can't explain, like Mike was talking about earlier with anger. I've had that anger, I've had the depression, I've had the anxiety, I've had all those things, and the Lord says, just let the Holy Spirit wreck it. Let him take everything, every doubt, every fear, all those things, and just lay it down before the Lord. Bar, or Nicodemus, I just want you to lay it all down. Lay the religion down. Lay the lies down. Lay everything down and come just as you are. And let my wind begin to flow through you. It will empower you. It will wreck you, but it's okay. You're going to be born again. You're going to be a different person. People are going to look at you and they're going to say, I don't even know that person. And we're going to stand before God one day, a new creation with a seed that is incorruptible and will not die. But if you hold on and that resistance you feel to this altar is the Holy Spirit trying to fight through your resistance. If you resist the Holy Spirit, there is no hope, church. The Holy Spirit must break through and do his work in your life in order to be saved. But when the Holy Spirit does the work, He does it completely. You just got to let Him. Hallelujah. If you need prayer today, these altars are open. I know eyes are closed. People are here because they want to pray for you. We've all been in that place. So if everybody, just, just close your eyes for one second. I want to try to break through these walls. You've never given your heart to the Lord this morning. Nobody's looking. I'm not even going to ask you to come forward. If that's you and you want to today, can I see that hand? I really want to encourage you this morning. Anybody, I see that hand. Anybody else? Never given your heart to the Lord this this morning. You want to do it. Don't hold back, church. Maybe you're in the church and said, man, Chad, you know what? The Holy Spirit's been working in about a hundred areas of my life and I'm fighting. Why would you fight the new creation God wants to do in you? God wants to show you off to the world as a new creation. He wants the world to see somebody that loves God, somebody that's close to God. He wants to literally, like a trophy, show you to the world a new creation created by me. That's you, and you've been fighting the Holy Spirit. You say, man, I was doing good for a while. You need to get back. You've been backslidden, maybe. You need to get back with the Lord get back in that commitment that new creation that's you I just want to see your hand everybody's got their eyes closed and Chad I haven't been living right but today I want to get right hallelujah church I'm going to have these altars open and if you would I know there's one person that wants to give their heart to the Lord this morning how many wants to make sure they're not alone up here as many believers as I can have let's come up here and worship together Make it more comfortable to be at this altar. If we're scared of the altar, how will other people be with our altars? Come on.
come on, I would invite you to come up here. I know you normally don't do that, but let's worship. Let's get used to this altar. If you want to give your heart to the Lord, you've never done that, you want to do that this morning, I'll be up here. You can find me. You can find me now. You can find me after the service. But if that's you and you want to give your heart to the Lord, I just encourage you this morning to come find me at the altar here. Hallelujah. Lord, my uh, our greatest joy as a church is to see people born again. You say, "Wow, I don't know if I totally understand that." I have six children. I can remember every one of the days that they were born. And how many know that? Um, Birth is an amazing thing to watch. And church, that's this church's greatest desire is to see people born again. And remember that day they were born. Can I tell you something? The one thing Jesus gave us to make it simple is when you've made that confession in your heart and you've been born again, baptized in water let me know that I have a tank back there and I'm eager to baptize why did he make it easy because all you have to do is invite everybody you know everybody you love and say Chad will you baptize me and you can tell the whole world that you're a new person Jesus gave us that to show the world that we're a new person It's to make sure we have an opportunity to reveal the new creation to the world. So if that's you and you want to be water baptized or you want to give your heart to the Lord, it's my greatest joy as a pastor to lead you to the Lord. Then you say, what happens next? I can remember uh, my wife calling me or me calling my wife and saying, you know what? They said their first words today. And it's my great joy as a pastor. Paul kept saying it makes my joy complete. But it's my joy to hear you begin to cry out to God for the first time. Speak out for the Lord for the first time. Speak words that you never spoke before about a God you never knew before. And then you say, well, what happens next? Well, you need to get home. Why? They took three steps and fell flat on their face. Tomorrow it's four steps. The next day it's ten steps. And I get to watch you raise your hands for the first time and worship God. I get to see you deal with failure for the first time through the power of the Holy Spirit. You say, what's that look like? You're going to fail. And then, oh, but wait, you're going to succeed because of grace. You know what it means to walk two steps and fall on your face? Hey, he took two steps today. 
We already forgot they fell on their face, right? But you took two steps. That's the right direction. In church, our joy is full by watching people be born again, baptized, walking and talking and speaking for Christ and growing in the Lord. Church, that's our greatest desire here. If, If you're away from the Lord, maybe you're backslid. Maybe you say, well, I got baptized and it didn't mean that to me at the time. I need to do it again. Church, I'm, I want to create a problem here. I've got a little tank back there that I'd like it to be a little nicer. But I need people that need to be baptized in order to create a problem for this church. Because I should have a nice, nicer baptism tank. Right? But if you got baptized and you didn't do it the right way, and didn't have faith in Christ, weren't born again, and you're ready to do it again, let me know. You've never given your heart to the Lord. I can pray a prayer in one second. Satan can build a, a, a kingdom in your heart. And in one second, with confession of faith, you can destroy all the work of the enemy in one moment by the power of the Holy Spirit and a new birth. Hallelujah. How many know that? Hallelujah. That's the good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, Lord. Oh, Lord, help us, Lord God, to speak in the power of your spirit. Oh, to do mighty things in your name, Lord God, to overcome the enemy at every turn. To wipe out the enemy, Lord God. To be bold against the enemy, Lord. Lord, to uproot all of his work, all of his lies, all of his deception, all of his depression, all of his anxiety, all of his worry, all of his fear, Lord God. Lord, we're going to plow through it through the power of the Holy Spirit. You're going to give victory in this house, Lord. We thank you, Lord. Oh, we worship you. We love you, Lord. Bless your people, Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We're going to continue to worship. But you're dismissed. Jackson has a word he wants to share, so I'm going to let him share. Check, 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 check. Okay, I wanted to get my, I wanted to get my <laughs> distance right. Um, just whenever everybody came up here to the altar, it kind of gave me uh, flashbacks of when my dad was a youth pastor. And we were, um, we'd be in the youth group and... I know he's told stories about a lot of kids who just weren't involved at all. Well, later down the road, um, whenever I was in the youth group, we got to a point where I could remember every single week, me and I feel like five to seven other guys, um, every single time worship would start at the beginning of service, we'd all run up to the altar and we would literally just kick our feet up against it and I always felt like whenever we did that it was kind of putting the whole world behind you and just say I'm as close as I can possibly get and we would just forget about everything else and um, and there would be 30 you know some kids up there just every time worship would start everybody would run and kick chairs over almost <laughs> but um, I remember one service where at the end 
Um, and it, it was whenever I was actually at the altar, and then whenever I was in the band, this would always happen. The band would be absolutely wore out at the end of service because they'd play like seven to ten songs, and nobody would leave. <laughs> so, you know, you'd be stretching your hands and everything, like, okay, I'm getting wore out. Well, there was one service where, um, I don't remember exactly what happened, but people were kind of being a little bit, you know, like, I kind of want to get out of here uh, as he was ending his sermon. Anyway, we got up to where we were about to do worship, and there were so many people just not into it at all. Uh, I remember my dad just being like, you know, if nobody wants to be here right now, then we'll just stop now. So he literally just cut it off. The band didn't come up at all. He just dismissed everybody, and he walked out. And we were, all of us who loved being up here, were completely just destroyed because we loved being up there so much. And we, we didn't have any worship that night. Everybody just went home. Well, in that moment, you didn't realize how much you treasure those moments of worship. When you can't, when you can't have it, you know. So uh, I just I just saw everybody get up here and kind of be in a ring, you know, at the edge of the chairs. And like Dad always says, this carpet's too nice up here. <laughs> um, but I know I I kind of miss. Just earlier, I went up here and kicked my foot up against that wood, and I was like, Why don't I do this every week? why I'm crying I'm having a mood swing <laughs> but uh, I just really said it all to say just treasure that worship moment you know even at the beginning of the service when we have worship just you know run up here and get to that altar because you don't realize how much um, it means to you till you know one day you can't do it so <laughs> I just felt like I really had to say that so Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah.